All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a beautiful day to worship you through the study of your word. Thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that our sins are forgiven. We pray, Father, that our hearts always be open and humble when it comes to your commands, for as your Spirit has taught us, they are to our benefit, and it is to your glory that we obey. We pray that we understand that you've given us an obedient heart, Father, and that your will is now made our will as part of being born again. We pray that we are able to discern between the desires of our heart and the desires of our flesh, and that in doing so we are able to resist the devil and his temptations and honor you in your Son's good name. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation of a fantastic series that we've been on now uh, since, I want to say, September-ish. The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification. We spent at least 20 lessons, 20 hours then, on the Gospel proper. And then he had us transition into salvation and now sanctification. But the way that the Spirit's been sort of presenting it to us, to the congregation, is that God saves and sanctifies. And I left that with you on Thursday. Keep saying that in your souls. God saves and sanctifies. Saves and sanctifies. He's a one sort of thought from one wellspring of truth, if you would. Uh, And it's okay to digest the aspects of a single doctrine like salvation and maybe even carved up categorically even further uh, you know like positional experiential and ultimate salvation those things are fine but when it comes to the big picture when it comes to putting it all together God saves and sanctifies and that's how you have to keep that right in your own soul even though we do carve it up for bitwise purpose of digestion or metabolizing doctrine uh, in your soul, the big picture is really what delivers us in the end. And that's what the Spirit has dogmatically been stating from the pulpit as of late. With that said, Jesus Christ was predestined to suffer undeservedly. So we've been spending an awful lot of time on this concept. Every front end of our lessons, the last few lessons, have been on the topic of predestination. You can't talk about predestination, at least not fully, without mentioning the divine decree, which was God's alone before human history even began. So predestination has been this sort of elevated helper to keep our minds on the things above, to keep our minds, even though we're doing groundwork below, to keep our minds on that big picture. He's used the concept of the doctrine of predestination to help us in that endeavor. And one of the things that really um, stands out is our prototype, Jesus Christ, who was also, as a man, predestined to suffer. 
We learn that in Acts 4.27 to 4.28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined. Pro Arizo always carries with it the purpose of God. Whatever to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now there's a from what I understand, there's a false doctrine going around uh, from some of the major denominations saying that the cross was a failure on Christ's behalf. Can you believe that? That the cross was a place where our Lord was overcome by evil somehow. But yet the scripture says he chose to lay down his life. He could have gotten off that cross anytime he wanted, but he didn't because he chose to die for our sins, for a joy set before him. That's the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm not sure what these denominations are thinking with their disgustingly evil leaders. But that's what's going around out here, not just even in the triangle, but globally. And of course, that's all part of this whole ecumenical movement, uh, movement that we're to be ready for in the so-called end times. So none of it's really um, surprising, but good for you, glory be to God, you understand the truth about our Lord and His work and the joy set before Him and how He, on His own initiative, chose to lay down His life for you and I. Amen? Yeah, that's the deal, right? But He also was predestined then to suffer for good reason. We all too often assume that predestination, since it is a very good thing, is simply God's way of pouring out what we traditionally classify as blessings. Some of us, especially early on, I think, in our spiritual walks, don't truly get what suffering for Christ means and the value of it. And it takes a little time, and that's why you do what you're doing right now, to learn what the Word of God has to say about even your suffering as an individual. And the Bible has a lot to say about it, as we've learned. And that takes us away from our, let's call it our natural or traditional. It's not natural for man to think of being in pain or suffering somehow as a blessing. So we have to learn these things. And it's with perspective, like predestination, like the joy set before our prototype, like all of these things that he's been presenting to us to deliver us in time. It takes those things for us to grow up out of the false doctrine that suffering is always to the unrighteous, because the righteous certainly suffer, Jesus Christ being the most righteous of all. So, we all too often assume that predestination, since it is a very good thing, is simply God's way of pouring out what we traditionally classify as blessings. However, as Scripture has taught us beyond the shadow of a doubt, suffering is a blessing too. 
you have been predestined to suffer up here on the board. This is sort of a pull together or a capstone of our lessons this past week. Jesus' suffering was a blessing to him. Quote, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. We believers are called the same way to suffer for Christ's sake, for example, for the gospel. Quote, for to you it has been granted. That's that Greek word charismai, which really points to suffering is a grace gift. For to you it has been granted. It's a grace gift. For Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So there's the indisputable proof that if you're a believer, the grace gift given to you is suffering. In our lengthy study about five years ago with Job, we learned that we mustn't ever take the advice of Eliphaz or any of his modern-day equivalents. That was this heinous doctrine, this false doctrine that proposes, and there's our key up here, right? The righteous man, the unrighteous man, that a righteous man always prospers. And if you're prospering, then you must be righteous. And that an unrighteous person suffers, and if you're suffering, then you must be unrighteous. That was the error, the doctrinal error that Eliphaz proposed to his friend Job which didn't help, obviously. So we can't make that same error. Here's the excerpt from Eliphaz's misconstrued conclusions. Job 4, 8-9, According to what I have seen, and there's what I would call, uh, you know, a flavor of existentialism. I taught that a couple of, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. In other words, using your experience to figure out the Word of God. That's not how it goes. Use the Word of God to figure out your experience. But Eliphaz was making that prior mistake, which is a mistake a lot of people make. According to what I have seen, he says, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it, uh, who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they come to an end. The correct depiction of properly applied, balanced doctrine is this. And this has everything to do with the sovereignty of God. If you're righteous, it's very likely that you could be rewarded, quote, with prosperity. But it's also very likely that you could suffer for Christ's sake. We just saw that. If you're unrighteous, it's possible you could prosper. But if you're unrighteous, it's possible, very likely, that you could suffer as well. So it's a many-to-many, quote-unquote, relationship. It's not a one-to-one relationship. There's not this false doctrine that Eliphaz was presenting. That is false. Based on scriptural evidence, we concluded this past week, Grace, you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. That's grace. It was granted, charizomai, grace gift. It was granted to you as a gift to suffer for Christ's sake. So that would be, you know, you maybe being totally righteous, 
and you suffer. Maybe you're standing up for Christ. Maybe you're delivering the gospel as we're supposed to in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That's the Great Commission. And maybe you suffer for it. But you're supposed to. You are predestined for it. And he will strengthen you as a result of it. Jesus, in his Beatitudes, encouraged his disciples. Go to Matthew 5.10. Matthew 5.10. It seems paradoxical that you would suffer and be blessed, or that suffering and blessing are in the same sentence, or even that suffering and grace are used in the Bible in the same context. But they absolutely are. So you should be encouraged in his Beatitudes, Jesus, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we can learn from that as well by saying, you know what, we're, not, we're certainly not the first generation to be persecuted. The generation that Jesus was talking to wasn't the first generation to be persecuted for the Lord's sake. This is not a new concept. Anybody who stands up for truth is going to be persecuted. Jesus' brother James encouraged the disciples three decades later with a similar sentiment regarding suffering. Go to James 1-2. James 1-2. So this is Jesus' brother, James, who, again, three decades later, you know, was suffering himself, most assuredly. And his disciples, or those that he was teaching, which were Christ's disciples, technically, were suffering as well. And so he had to bolster them, to build them up in their souls, so that, as a friendly reminder, so that they would push on through. James 1, 2, and that is, by the way, I've been thinking a lot about that, that is the value. And that's why I made that comment at the beginning of class. Look, I realize it's harder to get to church on a day like today, but all of you made it. And that's encouraging. Aren't you encouraged that I'm here with a lesson? That I didn't get stuck at 5.30 in the morning out in my tractor in the snowstorm in the dark? I could have been hit. I could have been maimed. <laughs> but God's grace delivered me. I'm serious. You guys don't, you think that's not, I'm serious. I almost went off the road, I'm just saying. Because someone tried to pass me, cockeyed. Real danger. But I consider it all joy. Huh? James 1 2? Are you there? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete. That means mature. Lacking in nothing. So it's right for you to actually say, wait a minute, you mean I'm not going to be 
perfect and complete unless I suffer? Yeah. Part of your plan is to suffer. There's an incongruity, there's a discontinuity with the world. When you become born again and saved, you're a different person. You have a different outlook. You don't think the same. You don't look at the things the same. I'm not saying the flesh doesn't. But the more you learn, the more you grow up in Christ, the less you even look at things the way the world does. That alone puts you on a different vector altogether. So the goals, everybody talks about goals, right? And most, most people in here, I'm assuming, have some form of work that they get to, whether it's at the home or even, home's not so bad, but maybe it's outside the home. It's very difficult because even the things that people find interesting to talk about or to celebrate are ungodly. They're taking people away from Christ at an accelerated uh, rate. And you're saying to yourself, I, can't, I don't want to celebrate this. Because you people are going this way. And if you pipe up, think about this. Everybody's celebrating something at work. And you go, that's bogus. That has nothing to do with Christ. What are we celebrating here? That's not Christ. What are you, who's going to be looking at you? Everybody. What's, what's wrong with you? You might as well be spitting pea soup, right? So it's like, Nobody, you know, those are the kinds of trials that we're talking about here. And if you stand up for Christ, then that's what's going to happen. But the point is that you will be perfect and complete when you allow those things to transpire in your life. James also discloses the remedy to the issue of suffering. Look at verse 5. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Up here on the board double-minded from dipsukos, it means double-souled even, refers to the person who wavers between God's ways and the world's ways, is the source of instability in life. It's easy even for believers, especially younger, weaker believers, to succumb to double-mindedness, to take the advice of an Eliphaz equivalent, to start questioning God's ways. To look at the unjust, unrighteous people who are prospering and say, well, what the heck? What gives? I'm righteous, I'm suffering, the unrighteous are prospering. What gives? And have a problem, take an issue with that. That's not good thinking at all. That's what makes a person unstable. Because now they're double-guessing They're questioning the sovereign will of God. They don't understand that they're supposed to suffer for His name's sake. That it's a blessing, that it's by grace that they've been given that opportunity to suffer. And so they become double-minded, unstable. You want to become unstable? Start questioning the sovereignty of God. That's immediately 
how you become unstable. And most people, I would argue, many of you even, will walk off the step and immediately live a life unto questioning the sovereignty of God. You'll go right back to your old way of life as if this is some kind of little microcosm that you get to go enjoy, and everybody nods their head and goes, yay, that was such a good principle. I'm so, this is, godliness is so awesome. And then they step off the stoop and it's all over. All bets are off. Back to the old way. Back to the double-mindedness. And then someone asks you, hey, you go to, you know, you, you, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I go to this church. I, I, you know, I go three times a week or whatever. I listen. On, whatever you're doing. And at the same time, as soon as that conversation's over, you're back to your old way. That's instability. Just waiting to blow up your life. That's what double-mindedness gets at. I gave you an analogy that we might dub Read the Note on Thursday evening, which was really about a person who kept opening a door and falling into a pit because they refused to read the note under the key that said, read me on it. The moral of that story was this, and it had everything to do with grace. The best decisions are made when we take the time to evaluate the context of our circumstances. That's all really God wants from us. Evaluate the context of our circumstances. This is analogous to lacking wisdom, as we just read in James, and insight in praying to God for directions on what to do or not do next. Of course, the corollary principle was this. If you refuse to, quote, read the notes, obey God, God's commands, then you can expect to suffer as fruit of self-righteousness and self-sanctification. That brought out a different topic, which was understanding whether or not it was deserved or undeserved type suffering. In other words, was God going to grace you out in some kind of a recovery mode because you kept falling into a pit? And he said, I'll pick you back up, but you're not going to move forward if you just stay in dysfunction junction. Was it that kind of grace? Or was it the real kind of grace reserved for, say, Christ uniquely, undeserved suffering, suffering for Christ's sake? Or was it that kind of suffering? By grace, he was trying to grow you up, strengthen you, reveal new things to you, maybe suffer for not even just you. How about stop being so self-absorbed? Maybe it's a really, maybe that, you know that verse, I think it's in the Bible. Something about esteeming others more highly than ourselves. You know, is there something like that? Right? Maybe that's what sacrifice is all about. Maybe, you'll, maybe you won't get anything out of about it or, or get anything from it. <gasps> what? There's no return on investment for me? It's not all about me, 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 me. No, sometimes it's about others. Imagine that. Imagine what Jesus was doing up on the cross. Was he saying, boy, this is awesome. I love being strung up and crucified. No. He even said, Father, if your will be done, take this cup from me. Because he was in complete agony, sweating blood. For you and me. Hmm. So you mean suffering sometimes brings glory to God and nothing to you? Yeah. The critical issue the Spirit's been focusing our attention on 
is this, that grace must be appropriated correctly in your soul. If you think you're suffering one way and you're really suffering another, then the grace part is going to get messed up as well. We went through a battery of sort of litmus tests, you know, including relationships and what have you. People doing things on their own accord and then complaining and praying to God for, you know, a certain kind of grace, what have you. A lot of people absolutely adore the idea of grace. They do. But they don't have it correctly defined or postured in their souls. For the unlearned believer, there's always the risk of assuming that God's grace will be applied in a way that is suitable to what we think is appropriate. In other words, we love the idea of grace, but we want to have a God like a puppeteer. We want to tell Him, even in prayer, where we think His grace ought to be used in our life. And we go about telling Him, or wanting to tell Him, how we think His grace ought to be used in our lives. So most people love the idea of grace. I mean, who doesn't like anything free? It's really the only, the only free lunch we get in life is grace from God. Everything else is strings attached, because everything else is from the world. So for the unlearned believer, there's always the risk of assuming that God's grace will be applied in a way that is suitable to what we think is appropriate. However, as Scripture clearly depicts, God's or grace is God's sovereign blessing to give in ways that He deems appropriate. So reflect for a moment. <clears throat> that may mean that while you're praying for one thing in your life to happen, He's shaking His head and gracing you out in another way altogether. For example, a person may be praying to God to deliver them up a companion, let's say, whether it's romantic or not, but let's just say it's romantic. That person prays and prays and wonders why God doesn't bring that person into their life. Meanwhile, what he's trying to get that person to realize is that every time a companion enters into their life, they lose focus on his son, dropping his hand for the hand of a mere human. So while the person thinks God isn't gracing them out, he actually really is by not sending them a companion. That's where the appropriation of grace matters. In that case, great example, God's grace is in not answering that prayer. God's grace is in saying, I know that if I give you something that you're asking for, and I know your heart's looking for it, if I give you that thing, you're going to drop my son like a hot potato. And you're going to be off and running like you have many times in the past. You're going to crash and burn a year or two down the road, and you're going to be in shambles, and then you'll be back, and then you'll heal up for a little while, and then you'll do it again. So I'm not going to give you that companion. Maybe he gave it to them in the first place so they could learn their lesson, blah, blah, blah. But you know how people are. Don't stick your finger in the socket. 
Don't stick your finger in the socket. Right? Every single time, over and over and over again, right? So God's grace sometimes is not answering your prayer. But he'll tell you this. That's the beauty of prayer. If you keep going back like he told us this past week, even if you're a flunky, so to speak, just keep going back. The worst thing you can do is stop. This is why prayer and intimacy with the Lord God is so very important. If you lack perspective, then know this. Grace is illumined with confession and prayer. Even the allocation of it, even the appropriation of grace is illumined with confession. And confession doesn't just mean sin. It means to agree with God on everything and prayer. If we refuse to accept his counsel, then what ought we to expect from this life? The person who refuses his grace will manufacture their own eventually, and then they'll call it grace. I mean, it happens every day when believers become impatient and settle for companions that want nothing to do with Christ, or even worse, will undoubtedly supplant the Lord as first priority in the life of the believer? People do that all the time. Hey, my biological clock is ticking. i got to pop out some babies. Let's go. i got to find somebody. God hasn't delivered anybody up. Let's go. Come on. All right, this one's as good as anything. He's a bit of a schmuck, but I'll work on him. Right? Chop, chop. God, you didn't do your job, so I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to call it grace. I'm going to call up all my friends. I've been so graced out by God. Can you believe it? God graced me out with this. Yeah, he's a bit of a schmuck. But boy, did he grace me out. I'm going to have babies now. We're going to have a little little white picket fence and a little cape on a hill. It's going to be fantastic. I'm I'm going to just throw everything I've learned out the window, or not learned, because I'm impatient, and then I'm going to call it grace. God blessed me out with this promotion. Really? You have any trouble with the spiritual life? Hello. All right, all right, all right. I'm not as faithful. I'm ignoring what the Spirit's telling me I need to be doing. I'm ignoring it, granted. But this is what I wanted. God loves me, so this is grace. And Satan's gone. That was fun. Because that's what people do. They misappropriate grace. Hmm. Isn't that what Jesus' brother James wrote about further on in his epistle as well? Go to James 4.3. This might be, this might be one of the most important verses that we study as a congregation. Now remember, every ministry has a a different focus based on what the Spirit sees fit for that congregation. But this particular verse might be one of the most appropriate for this pulpit. I am convinced of it, having been the person standing behind this pulpit all these years now. James 4.3 You ask and do not receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives. Wrong motives. Motives. Huh. Huh. Wrong 
motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. <laughs> Look, rightfulness, righteousness says, whatever's pleasing to you, Lord, whether face-to-face -face here on earth, I don't care, whatever's pleasing to you. That's right motives. Wrong motives? Give me some grace. Give me something. I'll just, I don't even care who gives it to me. Just, I want something. I'll call it grace, so I can kind of sleep at night. I'll call it grace, but I want it for me. It's all about me. Numero uno. I'll even go to class faithfully. But it's really about me. Everything I do is about me. So even when I'm asking, my motives are wrong. This is, this is, the, this is the verse that doesn't let... You notice how, like, over the years, the Spirit's given us fantastic doctrinal groundwork studies. Fantastic. Including the doctrine of suffering. 63 parts, if you remember. We used Job, Job to the T. But then he never lets us off the hook, does he? He won't. He says, how are your motivations doing then? Why do you like the doctrine of suffering? Why did you like that? Why do you like talking about Job? Do you misappropriate him in your soul? Are you saying that you're Job? Is this what you want to believe? Are you saying that X, Y, and Z that you've asked for is godly, is for God's glory? That thing that you keep praying for, is it for God's glory? Or is it not? Or is it for you? Well, that's what motivation's all about. So the Spirit's been really not letting us off the hook when it comes to motivation. And he shouldn't, frankly, because that's what religious institutions will do. They won't even talk about motivations. Why? They're way too challenging, way too convicting. But not this pulpit. This pulpit has been ordained to, what, prick just about every nerve in your body? Right? That's why everybody's laughing. A couple of you are not. I don't know what's going on in your souls, but I'm not going to look. Body language. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, this might arguably be one of the greatest application principles in the New Testament. Why? Because up here on the board, relative to grace, if your motives are wrong... The objective of grace is no longer consistent with God's. You may love the idea of grace, but you want to be the one appropriating it to your account. You want to be the one that sort of stands at the, you know, like the, the train guy would stand with that little lever. Right, this train goes this way, this one goes this way. You want to be that person. All right, here comes the grace. My account or God's account? Ching. Right? Shoo, yeah, we got another boatload. We got a whole train load of grace. Woo! Problem is, you had the wrong motives. You might get your job promotion. You might get your companion. You might get your whatever it is you've been praying for. You might actually get that. But since the motives were wrong, you have to actually go all the way back to the beginning and say, who granted me that stuff? Was it God who saw my heart? And my motives and would never give it to me? 
Or was it the world who saw what I was getting at and said, I'll give it to you. You won't have to wait another second. Which one was it? That's why you are the one that can answer that question about your motivation. All of this is intertwined, folks, and I hope you see it. And the Spirit will not let you off the hook. Why? Because you're not going to grow if He lets you off the hook. So, if your motives are wrong, the objective of grace is no longer consistent with God's. Look at verse 4. He gets even firmer. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealousy desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's your motivation. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. The humble person has proper motivations. The humble person doesn't wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to make this day about me? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that dipsukos again up here on the board. It refers to the person who wavers between God's ways and the world's ways. We seem to like God's ways. Train's coming down. We like to, we go, oh yeah, that's going to work out good for me, for my plans. Okay, God. That one doesn't. Me. That one works good for my plans. God. We tend to like those ones. But when His will doesn't line up with our will, we have a double-mindedness. And if you want to be unstable, do that very thing. Continue to do that thing in your soul. So what the Spirit's been pointing out is what someone recently told me in private. He said, if we're not all in, then we aren't really committed. If we're not all in, then we aren't really committed, and if we aren't committed, he's not our priority. And when our priorities are messed up, when he's not our number one priority, then our appropriation of grace is messed up. Because we like to reverse engineer things to meet our priorities. We like to call things grace that aren't actually grace. We like to call things blessings that aren't actually blessings. If we're not all in, then we aren't really committed. A committed bride is a faithful, submissive one. A committed bride is a faithful, submissive one. We are Christ's bride, remember, but most of us suffer a bit of double-mindedness. And in doing so, we aim to self-sanctify. So we must ask ourselves up here in the board, what are we agreeing to? What are we confessing? If we can't even agree with him on how to live the spiritual life, we are confessing, in a sense, that we know better and that we will self-sanctify ourselves. 
That's what we're saying. And I have it in quotes because we're not agreeing with God. We're agreeing with the flesh. Oh, we're confessing. We're agreeing, but we're agreeing with the flesh. Because the flesh vehemently disagrees with everything that God says. And that's how you self-sanctify. So what are we confessing? What are we agreeing to? If we can't even agree with him on how to live the spiritual life, we are, quote, confessing in a sense that we know better and that we will self-sanctify ourselves. Now, all of that has been the front end of our studies this past week. It actually dominated probably 90% of our studies. So if you missed either Tuesday or Thursday's lessons, I suggest you catch up as soon as possible. With that said, we need to continue with the baseline concept and I alluded to this at the beginning of class, that God saves and sanctifies. Saves and sanctifies. That, the front end of class has really been about perspective and making sure that you don't fall into any of those pitfalls that most people fall into. Whether it's an issue of grace, suffering, what have you. Keep those things straight in your mind so that when we do build up and build on the groundwork of God saves and sanctifies, you're not misplacing anything. You're less likely to misappropriate what the Spirit's trying to teach you. So with that said, we need to continue with the baseline concept that God saves and sanctifies. And I say that as a single concept because that is how the Spirit's been leading us into this study. So we finished up the first part of our current working framework up here on the board. This was what we tackled regarding salvation. Salvation perspectives, God's perspective. To him, it's saving us from sin. That's one sort of side of the coin. He saves us from sin, delivers us, sanctifies us to righteousness. That's the flow. Saves us from sin, sanctifies us to righteousness. That whole process, the movement, is what we call deliverance. Man's perspective, though, there's sort of three tenses in view, positional from the penalty of sin, experiential from the power of sin, ultimate from the presence of sin. He also gave us some helper principles such as salvation, salvation is living in the gospel reality, in other words, it's the very power of salvation, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, before we get to from faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. God saves us from sin. The only way you can live by faith is if you've departed from sin. You've been somehow delivered from the snare, whether it's the penalty, the power, or the presence of sin. You've been delivered from that domain that's Satan's kingdom, right? He's ruler there. He's sovereign there. He takes you out of that by grace. That's what salvation means. You've been saved from the various aspects of sin. But it's just sin in general. That's the high-level picture. So salvation is then is living in the gospel reality, which is away from all of that. Living in the reality. God's perspective is... He saved you. If you're a believer, you're saved. Go to Romans 1.16. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 1.16. 
And that's that very valuable perspective that the Spirit keeps giving us. Think about it as much as you can from God's perspective and to whatever degree you're able to do that, and it will increase over time as you grow in the grace and knowledge of God. To whatever degree you do that, you'll have a greater level of confidence in God's promises. Uh, You'll be more assured. Uh, There's more of the sense of the perseverance of the saint in there. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We borrowed a few points from our previous lessons up here on the board. I just alluded to this. The perseverance of the saints. Perseverance, you need to think about perseverance as a, another gift from God. It describes something. It describes an absolute reality to the believer. In other words, if you're saved, you will persevere. That's what we learned with that little short blurb on apostasy in the middle of our series. That the person who doesn't persevere cannot be saved. The person who's saved will persevere. You may not see it all. You may have to, as James wrote, you may have to go to God in prayer because you don't have the wisdom yet to see it. You don't have the level of introspection that a more mature person has to sort of ferret that out in your own soul. But the reality is that if you're saved, you will persevere. That's why God saves and sanctifies. It's not an if. It's how, it's when. And that's part of the joy of discovering the spiritual life. That he does all those things. He gives each of us, as individuals, a measure of faith, right? We don't all get the same grace through faith. We don't all have the same lives. So there's a certain uniqueness, a certain joy, a certain uh, excitement of living the spiritual life. Because guess what? Everybody in here is different. That's why he says, don't forsake getting together, because I'm going to see in... Tammy, one kind of grace and faith, then I'm going to see different in Scott. Right? Or Jane. Or Art. Or Ann. Or, you know, anybody. Everybody's like, what about me? Why don't you ever say my name? Because if I said your name, you'd get puffed up, and that wouldn't be grace. You get it? I'm just kidding. I would never have to be. Under the they're like, Send him hate mail (laughs) after class. (laughs) The point, again, if you're saved, you will persevere. You have to know that. From faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. It endures. In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. So in essence, the reason why all this emphasis has been on this magnificent passage, Romans 1.16 and 17 primarily, it's because Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. This isn't, look, when you read the Bible, when you come to class, this isn't a history class. This is life. This isn't a history class. You can't say, oh, Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. He didn't know my problems. Okay. 
You want to swap positions with Paul? You want God to do a do-over and you can be stoned and thrown in the ocean and killed and almost killed and left for dead and you want his job? Have to hike thousands of miles on missionary journeys when some of you can't make it from the car to the church without complaining? Seriously. You think there were snowblowers? You think there was salt? You think there were, uh, you know, 20 below uh, uh, snorkely boots and jackets? Whatever. Do you think, you know what I'm saying? Was there any North Face for you snobs? Right? Was there any of that? No. There wasn't any of that stuff. He's out there shucking around and people want to kill him. Anybody try to kill you in the walk over here? No. Maybe just your spouse. You're making us late. Let's go. I warned you. I told you it was going to snow. <laughs> grace, God, grace. Suffered for Jesus. No, because you married it. You said I do. This is your problem. <laughs> so Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for true believers. And again, this is not a history class. People love to do that. Oh, this is like ancient stuff. I'll just put it over here. If I happen to pluck out a, you know, a, a moral of a story, I'll grab it and I'll run with that. But I'm not going to be all in. I mean, God doesn't expect me to be all in, does he? Yeah, he does. Stated simply, saving faith. You were saved by grace through faith positionally. And you are saved by grace through faith experientially. It is by faith that the righteous man lives. Again, our pivotal passage is Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. One of the dangers of not receiving this passage correctly into your soul is what the world peddles, a counterfeit salvation and sanctification. Up here on the board. Counterfeit salvation. All religions come back to one basic satanic strategy. That is that the creature saves himself, sanctifies himself, for himself, and by himself. That's the basis of all religions, frankly. And it's satanic. That the creature saves himself, sanctifies himself, for himself, by himself. You know, that's Galatians 3.3. 3. Start by the Spirit, but you're going to finish his work. This kind of a thing. In his prayer to his Father, Jesus said these things. John 17.19. 17, I'll give you the amplified. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart for your purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. Just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them, believers, into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself to do your will, so that they also may be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, made holy in your truth. I can't wait to meet him. It's time now to begin moving towards the other perspective the Spirit gave us. So that was to help close up our perspective on salvation, the three tenses, etc. 
we now move to sanctification perspectives. God's perspective, again, I'm just going to set them apart. Remember the big picture, regardless of the nuances. Save us from sin, sanctify us to righteousness. That's how we're delivered. Now, again, because we have this sort of time-oriented perspective, man does, we might look at these things as phases, positional phase, where he imputes righteousness judicially to our account, the experiential phase, which is imparted righteousness, it's a daily thing, and then there's ultimate sanctification where it's completed or perfected, you might say, and that's an eternal issue. Okay, So those are the three different phases that we'll discover in Scripture and help get this straight in our souls. First, let us not forget another foundational truth. Only God can sanctify man. Only God. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. That's why it's so very important. That's why he started with 20 lessons on the gospel. He said, this is your starting point. Get it right. Get it whole. That's your from faith. This is your, the anchor of your life. If you forget everything else, which won't happen, but you know what I mean. If you forget everything else, remember and live the gospel reality. As soon as you start living the gospel reality, you're going. Why? Because the person who lives the gospel reality is rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and thankful for everything. And that's what's pleasing to God. That's from faith. Only God can sanctify man. Don't lose sight of the gospel. In other words, again, we are amplifying Romans 117 up here on the board. Faith and righteousness were in view. What Paul is getting at in Romans 117 when he says, this righteousness that we've received from God is revealed, is that it is revealed in such a way that faith is the channel for grace that sanctifies at salvation and beyond, a.k.a. from faith to faith. And then the corollary, when true faith exists in a believer, the grace of God is revealed. Who gives us faith? He does. So who do we turn back to? Him. I am what I am by the grace of God, right? The only reason you have any faith and conviction in your life is why? Because He gave it to you. The only reason you have any confidence whatsoever in your own salvation is because you've been given faith. Who gave it to you? He did. And when you start living from faith to faith, when the righteous man lives by faith, that thing that's given to you, think about that. You're living on the very premise that he gave you something, which makes you grace-oriented, which reveals what? The grace of God. To you and to everyone else. To the angels and the great theatron. You see how that works? That's Romans 117. That's the beauty of Romans 117. You start reading, the more you read Romans 117, I get goosebumps right now. The more you read Romans 117, the more you can't do anything but literally just fall down on your knees in gratitude and say, Man, I really didn't do anything. No, you didn't. You only think you do. You only want to sanctify yourself. You only forget from time to time who's made all this a reality. You only get self-absorbed from time to time. Thank you very much, God! See you in heaven. And he's like smacking you and smacking you. And deep down in your heart, your changed heart, 
you're obedient, you know what the right thing to do is, while you're going off on your way and your buddies are, yeah, you're a good chap, you're a good old chap. When true faith exists in a believer, the grace of God is revealed. Why? Because faith is a gift. And all gifts from God are by grace. James 1.17 says they're all from heaven. No shifting shadow. Stated more practically up here on the board, he is our deliverer. God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which his grace is poured out. A believer lives by faith. And that's the intrinsic connectivity, the connective tissue between the statement, God saves and sanctifies. Before he can sanctify you, what did he do? He saved you. Before he can deliver you from over here to righteousness, what did he have to do? He had to pluck you out of sin. He had to save you, whether positionally, experientially, or ultimately. He saves you from that, and he delivers you unto sanctification or righteousness. But he can't do this without this. But to God, they're all this. Does that make sense? He didn't do one and not the other. That's another form of perverted doctrine where some people believe you can do one but not the other. Or he leaves you hanging. And you can somehow be a perpetual, unloving, carnal, quote-unquote, Christian. That's a garbage doctrine that throws out the very righteousness and sovereignty of God. He doesn't leave you hanging. And His grace never fails. You may forget about it, but since your heart has changed, you'll get back to Him. A true believer always does. A true believer what? Perseveres. The one who doesn't persevere God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which His grace is poured out. A believer lives by faith. The baseline pattern for any phase of salvation, sanctification, then, is something we've learned time and time again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how it works. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I like the way McGee said it. I'll give it to you again. I think I gave this to you a couple of weeks back. J. Vernon McGee on From Faith to Faith. From Faith to Faith simply means out of faith into faith. God saves you by faith. You live by faith. You die by faith. And you'll be in heaven by faith. He says, When I was born, my mother said to the doctor, said the doctor lifted me up by my heels, gave me a whack, and I let out a cry that could be heard in all four borders of that great state. He was born in Texas. I was born into a world of atmosphere, and that whack started me breathing. From that, due to this, I have been breathing atmosphere from air to air, from oxygen to oxygen. Much later in the state of Oklahoma, I was born again. I was saved by faith, and from that time on, it has been by faith, from faith to faith. The analogy being that that's what we breathe. We live and breathe this thing. We are sustained by grace. What are you eating right now? The Word of God. The bread of life. This is your spiritual sustenance. 
and it is by grace that you're receiving it. That's what it means from faith to faith. The grace of God even is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. What a nice, simple way to think about such a powerful statement in Scripture from faith to faith. Again, here's the framework that our lesson is building up towards. Sanctification perspective. God, the way God sees it, He's setting His own apart for Himself to righteousness. From our perspective, though, on a timeline, we have phases that we can point to, positional, experiential, and ultimate. Before we dig in, I'm going to have to figure a spot to, to stop here. Before we dig in, we still have some additional groundwork regarding the biblical terminology we will encounter in this endeavor. Probably not going to get to dig into it the way I wanted to this morning, but that's okay. Up here on the board, I want to give you some background. Again, this is biblical background, sort of doctrinally oriented. The word sanctify or sanctification or the variance in the Bible used 106 times in the Old Testament and 31 times in the New Testament. In general, it refers to being set apart or the state of being so. That's what sanctify means. It means to be set apart. You see, saving you from sin isn't yet set you apart, has it? It's like half of the equation. He plucks you from the domain, but then he sets you apart to a separate domain. The domain of sin or unrighteousness to the domain of righteousness. So this is the second portion, if you would. He saves, he sanctifies. And he doesn't not do one. If he saves you, he's going to sanctify you. So sanctify, sanctification, as you can imagine, is a big deal. I mean, in many ways, it's our great hope. It's tied directly to our confidence. So sanctifying sanctification is really a big topic in the Bible. Used 106 times in the Old Testament, 31 times in the New Testament. In general, it refers to being set apart or the state of being so. It typically relates to matters of position and relationship. For example, regarding a person's standing with God. And we can all relate to that. When we were unsaved, we were alienated from God. When we're saved, we're alienated to the world. Our citizenship swaps, right? In time, if we're confessing, if we're obeying His commands, then even in that sense, our relationship, our position to God is righteous. We call that imparted righteousness. We don't always produce divine good fruit. Sometimes we produce horrible fruit, right? When we fall prey to temptation. That's not imputed, or excuse me, imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness is when we produce something that really only God alone can lay claim to by grace. We call that imparted righteousness. And that's the dichotomy, if you would, of the experiential phase of sanctification. We don't always produce uh, righteous fruit. So in general, though, it refers to being set apart or the state of being, so it typically relates to matters 
of position and relationship, for example, regarding a person's standing with God. Ultimately, we're going to be with him in heaven. That's our eternal state. Never to be alienated again. No part of us. We don't have the body anymore. The body of sin won't be in heaven. We'll have a resurrected body that's righteous. So we won't have that problem. Our standing will be permanent or completed righteousness, which is the third phase, ultimate phase of sanctification. As we've already noted in our framework, there are multiple phases to sanctification from man's perspective, even though God sees the parade all at once. For example, it is absolutely correct for a believer to say, I've been sanctified and I'm being sanctified in the same sentence. It's actually correct. It's not incorrect for a person to say, I've been sanctified and I'm being sanctified in the same statement or in the same sentence. It's not incorrect to say that. Only a person with an artificially constructed definition for sanctification will struggle with such statements. As we continue with Scripture, we'll see firsthand this fact. The other word worth noting here, before we close, that relates to sanctification in the Bible is holy or holiness. Now, this word is used 400 times, about 400 times in the Old Testament and 12 times in the New Testament, referring to believers refers to being separated from that which is unholy. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Thus he was sanctified. Except for God, sinlessness is not necessarily implied, as even the holiest of priests in the Old Testament were sinners. So in other words, you're not unholy, relatively speaking, even now. Look, this is what I think this is what I'll leave you with. Yeah, this is what I'm going to leave you with. It's an old friend, an old concept that's been drilled into our souls over the past definitely year, possibly more. And it's coming back to us. This is where the value of doing that groundwork is so good. Because we're not now preoccupied with learning context sensitivity. It's ingrained in us, right? So now we get to apply that and build on it with these viewpoints. Both sanctified and holy are context-sensitive in the Bible. What does that say to you? It says, listen, when you hear the word holy, is it enough to say that you know all the facts? Is it enough to say that you understand what's really being said, unless you understand what? The context. That's why it's really important for you to take lessons like this, go home and go do your checks. Go read the rest of the chapter. If you've not seen it before, if there's some you know, doubt or uh, you know, inconclusiveness in your own soul on a certain verse, write the verse down and go home and read the whole chapter. Chances are you'll get the whole context and then you'll understand Oh, that's what, the, that's what the Spirit was trying to say on the word holy from the pulpit. Oh, that's what he was saying when he said sanctified. No wonder why I was confused. Most of you are like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> or, or the, the, you know, some people are going like this. And they're just doodling. 
like Squiggy or Ziggy, whatever his name was. Woohoo! I'm not. I was pretty presumptuous. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in your souls, maybe you're doing that. You're like, oh. The likelihood of me doing a check on Scripture is zero to none. Well, <laughs> that's what you get then. The double-minded person ought not to expect what? Nothing! Zero to none! Yay! And who do you have to blame? You. Not my fault. I'm over here busting my hump for you guys, day in and day out, and then it's up to you. There you go. What you do with it afterwards, that's between you and the Lord. But don't misappropriate His grace. Don't take things out of context. Don't pretend you're suffering for Jesus when you're not. Don't go before the throne of grace and keep praying the same stupid thing over and over when he keeps telling you the same righteous thing and you ignore him. And then expect him to deliver you. Expect him to do these things. Don't do that. Because you just, I ain't saying, what do you say? Both sanctified and holy are context sensitive in the Bible. Those are some of the things that we're going to learn when we get into that framework, which looks like this. Okay, We're going to look at the three phases, positional, experiential, and ultimate sanctification. But know this again up front, and then I'm going to show you a video. We'll close in prayer. Both sanctified and holy as concepts are context-sensitive in the Bible. We learn that with salvation too, right? Like Peter said, the salvation of your souls. But he was talking to believers. How could that possibly be? Because he was talking about experiential and ultimate. The whole thing wrapped into one kit and caboodle. It's context. He's taught us one thing over the last year or so. It's been read your Bibles, first of all, and read them for context. And if you don't have the context somewhere in your soul already and it comes from the pulpit, then do the homework and go check it so that you have the context. You might be surprised what happens. But again, that's between you and the Lord. You know, I'm just a broken record. <laughs> All right, you want to get the lights? Letting go of every single dream one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary, I need your rest Mighty warrior, king of the no matter what I face, you're by my side When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through When you don't give the answers, as I cry out to you I will trust, I will trust, I will trust Truth is, you know 
what tomorrow brings. It's not a day yet you have not seen. So in all things, be my life and bread. I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time to spend fellowshipping with you in this intimate setting, and for reminding us of the true gospel that saves and sanctifies. Father, we pray for those not with us here this morning, that their hearts be renewed each and every day in light of the presence of the light, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in their life. We pray that those who hear this message understand the true depths of what your Spirit has been revealing through Scripture, that your intention, as it remains steadfast as the cause and sustainer of your decree, is that we are saved and sanctified by grace. We pray that we continue to grow in your grace and knowledge and that our confidence swells all the more. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.